The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Since you're listening to this podcast, we have a very special offer for you. You can try six issues of BBC History Revealed magazine for just $9.99. That's a saving of 70% on the shop price. BBC History Revealed is the all-action history magazine suitable for the whole family. To find out more and take advantage of this offer, visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash podcast. And if you're based in the US, you won't miss out. You can try three issues for just $9.95, saving a huge 70%. For more details, visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash podcast. Both these offers end on the 15th of May, 2021. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. After the invasion of the Viking Great Army by the latter part of the 9th century, historians speak about there being a separate part of what's now eastern and northern England called the Danelaw, where Scandinavian laws and customs prevailed. But what actually was the Danelaw and how should we understand it? Our content director, Dave Musgrove, called Dr Ben Ruffield of the University of Uppsala to find out. Okay, so today I'm joined by Dr. Ben Raffield, who is Associate Professor in the Department of Archaeology and Ancient History at Uppsala University in Sweden. He wrote a very interesting article, The Dane Law Reconsidered, Colonisation and Conflict in Viking Age England, in the 2020 issue of the journal Viking and Medieval Scandinavia. So I thought maybe we could consider and reconsider the Dane Law on the podcast today. So Ben, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us. How are you? Uh, I'm I'm fine, thank you, and thank you for inviting me to participate in this. Ah, good, good to, good to have you on. So, uh, first thing we really need to to, to delve into is is to establish what the Dane law is. What what do we mean by this term, the Dane law? So, in the general understanding of 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 this term, I mean, we're talking about an area of eastern and northern England um, that was uh, conquered, as it were, and settled. Um, by Scandinavian groups during the late 9th century. Um, this is a process that began in the 860s with the arrival of the so-called Viking Great Army, um, who uh, arrived in eastern England and proceeded to um, conquer and annex the territories of, of York, East Anglia, uh, and, and the Midlands, uh, what was then Mercia. Um, and this became uh, a focus of quite substantial settlement from the 860s to 870s onwards for several generations. Um, and that really is the, the kind of the, the geographical focus of this, this area that we call the Dangor. More than that, it's also a term that has since um, been used to define this area culturally. And actually, this, the, the usage of this term goes back all the way to the medieval period. Um, so <laughs> from, the, from the outset, actually, what we're dealing with here um, is, is several different constructs of what the Dane law is. It's a term that first appears in the 10th century, uh, for example, um, when 
the uh, the the English king at the time, Edgar. Um, he decreed that the Danes living in England could actually um, exercise their rights to live as best as their own legal frameworks allowed. Um, you know, in contrast to people living under English law. Um, and this later in the 11th century actually appears as, as a term, uh, Dana Lager, um, meaning the areas under Danish law. Um, but in the, in the 12th century, this becomes almost a, a geopolitical term. Uh, the Dane law is this part of northern and eastern England, um, which exists in contrast to Wessex and Mercia uh, in the south and west. Um, and this is uh, enshrined in, in various law codes of the time. Um, so, <laughs> really, it's 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 a it's what is originally a, a descriptive term used to de- de- describe, you know, um, cultural and especially legal differentiation in England. It, it very, I say, quickly over the course of a couple of centuries um, morphs into something very different. Um, and today, when we talk about the Dane law, um, really what we are referring to, even implicitly, is this kind of later definition. This is a geographical place or space um, within which things are happening um, during the, the early medieval period in the Middle Ages. So it's, <laughs> it's quite hard to say in that sense what the Dane law actually is. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's... Uh, you know, maybe, maybe at best, uh, I would say, a concept. It's an idea um, that that reflects uh, very many different um, <laughs> different ideas held by people at different times. So, but what we need to um, understand for our listeners is how these how these Danish people, these mm-hmm. Scandinavians, were in this bit of a bit of uh, land that is conceptualised mm-hmm. as the Dane law. Um, so that takes us back to uh, the, the Viking Great Army, mm-hmm. I guess, in the in the mid-9th century, in the 860s. Um, so you'd better just drop us into this story here. And I think maybe also while we're talking, we ought to be clear about what you're comfortable with in terms of nomenclature, Vikings um, and Anglo-Saxons as well. The, these would be the two mm-hmm. sort of groups that, uh, that could be involved in this, and uh, those terms are, are somewhat contentious. Sure, and... You know, when when we talk about the Dane law, I mean, we we have to, in one sense, which I didn't, what I didn't do, is begin with with this group, the Great Army, which arrives uh, in England in the in the eight sixties, um, and spends um, you know the next decade or so traveling around England, campaigning in England, um, taking on and. Um, effectively uh, conquering a number of the the regional kingdoms uh, that were um, in existence at the time. And uh, and as I said, you know, so the Dane law in this sense is at a fundamental level, this this area that becomes um, annexed or conquered and settled by the great army. And, and, and of course, after that, you know, subsequent waves of settlers coming over from Scandinavia and elsewhere, uh, leading into the uh, into the tenth century, um, and generally it's defined in terms of our you know kind of modern uh, regional understanding in England as uh, you know the counties, um, especially you know of Yorkshire and Lincolnshire, um, down into the Midlands, uh, Northamptonshire, Cambridgeshire, Bedfordshire, and and across into East Anglia. Um, so Norfolk, Suffolk, and and at least originally, probably what it what is Essex and part of Greater London. Um, so it's actually it's a really quite considerable 
area um, previously occupied, you know, or ruled over by by uh, various regional English kings that becomes well settled essentially, and that's the word I like to use more than anything, as opposed to kind of conquered and ruled. It's settled by the great army, elements of the great army, and uh, and later Scandinavian settlers. Um, and it's, <laughs> of course, you can make you can make things extra complicated by talking about terminology. And uh, you know, the the essence of, the, of this article that I've written is to kind of try and understand better the the idea of the Dane law. So that's something we will return to. But um, uh, you know, we can talk about the uh, who the, the the people occupying this part of the landscape. We could, you know, many people would refer to them as Vikings or Viking settlers. Um, this is a term we are all familiar with. We have have a very good idea of what that means. Um, but I, uh, uh, I think rather clumsily, but for the right reasons, I like to feel I, I refer to this this area, you know, that we call the Danelaws as kind of Scandinavian occupied England generally, um, because what we have here, um, the you know the groups that are part of this Viking great army, um, they are generally a number of uh, autonomous groups of, of varying size. We have no idea how large these individual groups were in the Great Army that have joined together and, and come over to England, um, pre- presumably in, with the purpose and intent of settling land and taking land. Um, so in that sense, you know, I mean, they're not fulfilling that kind of stereotypical image of the Vikings that we have in, in our, often in our minds, you know, they're, they're not just coming here um, with, you know, the intent of pursuing violence. You know, that's, that's what we associate with the Viking Age. Um, they are, of course, a, a, a militarized force. And, you know, they are, everything they do is, is to a great extent governed by, um, you know, this, this idea of forcefully taking land. But at the same time, there is a clear intent to settle and to establish themselves with a sense of permanent in, permanence in the English landscape. Um, so in that sense, I, I don't refer to these people as Vikings. Um, for me, that's a term we use to, you know, explicitly discuss the maritime raiders, um, you know, the pirates of the early medieval world, um, you know, mostly from Scandinavia, but they're not all, not all uh, exclusively comprising Scandinavians. Um so as I said, you know, terminology can take us into a lot of complicated uh, areas, but I think it's kind of important to establish that. So just as we're talking about the idea of the Vikings, we we need to also talk about the ideas of Anglo-Saxon England or these these people that are commonly referred to as the Anglo-Saxons. Um, and this is this is another term, you know, that is equally complicated in its own ways, and that it is very homogenizing and it applies a very broad brush to many, many groups of people living in what would, you know, what is England now um, during the early medieval period. Um, And if we really want to understand what's going on in England at this time, I think we need to think more regionally and even locally. So actually, um, and there's lots of different terms now that we we can use and people are are actually debating this currently is, you know, how do we deal with this idea of Anglo-Saxon England? Um, but for me personally, in the last few years, I've kind of started gravitating towards this idea of, of um, the early English kingdoms, um, the, the kingdoms that would, you know, um, 
eventually become what what we now know today as England. Um, so as I said, you know, terminology can take us into a lot of kind of complicated discussions, and 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 they're not always ones that we need to really you know pursue in a lot of depth, depending on what we're talking about. But it's good to be aware of that um, for sure. The context here is um, is that we, you had these uh, Viking raids mm-hmm. from the from the end of the eighth century uh, through for the next few decades until we get to the the, the Great Army, and so there'd been a lot of activity around the coast of uh, of Britain and Ireland during that period. Mm-hmm. And then we get we get this Great Army coming uh, and a, a larger group of people coming with, as you say, possibly. Different intentions to the to the to the first tranche of people who arrived, um, and so we get this 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 settlement period. How many people were coming from Scandinavia to this part of of England, um, and over what what length of, of time? Uh, this is one of those "how long is a piece of string" questions. I think um, so. The the scale of these. Um, what what was described in the past, these kind of invasions and settlement has been debated. I mean, um, in terms of the Great Army itself, for example, in the the latter part of the 20th century, it was actually suggested that this Great Army might have numbered a few hundred people. Um, This is an idea that's that's changed radically uh, since the turn of the the millennium. And, um, you know, we, we, I think me, myself, my colleagues would mostly agree that, you know, we're talking about a group numbering at least in the low thousands at this point. Um, so it's quite a sizable force. And then following this, um, as I said, kind of, you know, subsequent waves of settlers and also actually um, something I didn't mention, which is important, you know, subsequent, you know, raiding fleets, they're still showing up, um, moving into the 10th century. And, you know, some of them are uh, clearly in, engaging in dialogue with these settled populations and probably settling among them themselves. But my um, my colleague, uh, Jane Kershaw, um, uh, at the University of Oxford, uh, working with another one of my colleagues, uh, Ellen Royovic, they've recently, in a study of, um, you know, the the early settlement population of England, I mean, they, they've now come to a, and I think probably a, a realistic estimate. We're, we're talking about several tens of thousands of people. They, they suggest 20 to 35,000 um, arriving in um, what they call the, the core Danelaw county. So uh, between about, you know, Yorkshire... Uh, Lincolnshire, um, Suffolk, Norfolk, um, over the, you know, a, a course of several generations. Um, so when we add to that, you know, the, what, maybe non-core Danelaw County, so, you know, we're talking about uh, Leicestershire, Northamptonshire, Bedfordshire, Cambridgeshire, uh, these are also being settled. Um, so I think we could probably take that estimate and probably add a little more onto it. Um, but but as I said, you know, we... we Ultimately, it's it's very hard to tell. Um, but uh, my view is is this is probably a much you know much larger settlement than people would have previously uh, estimated. Um, and of course, I think that that leads to further questions. You know, I mean, you you have quite large numbers of people um, arriving in a in in a landscape that's that's incredibly well ordered. Um, you know, hierarchically, politically, socially. This isn't like, you know, where we have Scandinavians settlers going off into the North Atlantic and settling in in Iceland, for example, um, where, you know, they, they can establish their own land holdings. Those people arriving in England have to fit into a into a, an ordered landscape. Um, 
And in my view, that has to have some kind of implication, um, you know, whether those are, are violent implications or even just social and cultural and political implications that have to be negotiated. You know, these people can't just turn up and, and take whatever land they want. This this needs mm. to be ordered somehow. Um, so let's let's just let's just drill into that a second. So the, mm. so the time period here for this for the for this movement is the last third of the of the ninth century and the what the first half of the tenth century. Sure, um, we we can talk broadly from I uh, say you know the 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 eight seventies into the the early nine hundreds. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so we've got uh, a, a reasonably substantial population movement coming in mm-hmm. is that swamping the existing population can you would can i pin you down on the number of people who are uh who who are the uh, incumbents <laughs> i i don't know that i don't know the answer to that um honestly uh but but as i said i think just based on the you know the the, the numbers of people arriving i mean this this is a landscape that is parceled up um you know it is owned um, and controlled very strictly. Uh, so even in, in in sense of you know whether it's certain areas are densely populated, that they're still owned by someone. Um, and so we you know as I said you know what implications that that means you know kind of this process that we might call land taking or settlement or colonization. Um, in that, I don't. I, for me, the the number of you know the the size of that population isn't necessarily the the, the biggest factor to consider. It's, it's the general social impact of that settlement. Um, and so, so what do we know about the interaction then between those between those people, the people who came and the people who were there? Was it violence or was it peaceful or is that? Or do we can we not can we not generalize? Yeah, I, I don't think we can. I think it's a. You know, of course, when we when we have the great army um, arriving in England in the eight sixties, this is this is an incredibly violent period. Um, you know, the Anglo-Saxon chronicle, um, in such detail as it offers, you know, is is quite explicit in describing the, uh, um, you know, the battles taking place. Um, the uh, and, and as I said, the, the conquest of these regional English kingdoms. But following this, if we're starting to talk about you know this this process of settlement. Um, it's difficult, you know? I mean, I think naturally one would assume that there's an element of of coercive power. Uh, you know, this is, as I said, it's, it's an armed group settling the landscape. But, you know, moving into the 10th century itself, when we, um, you know, we start to see the uh, the conquest of this region by by, you know, Alfred of Wessex and his descendants, I have thought a lot about, you know, how that would have been perceived by, as you said, the incumbent population of of England, you know, the English themselves, as it were, um, because these are regional kingdoms, you know, you know, and especially we're talking about settlement taking place over generations. You know, these are, are communities that would have, you know, even if they started off with a sense of kind of you know, uh, opposition to each other in the early settlement phase, over, over generations, these people would come together. Um, and we see this in the material record, you know, through the creation of uh, what we might call hybridized material culture, the, the creation of jewelry, for example, incorporating both um, Scandinavian and um, what, what is described archaeologically as Anglo-Saxon influences. Um, so there is, of course, a, a, a mixing of peoples and a, a kind of 
a coalescence, a coming together of different groups. Um, but but honestly, the part of what I find, again, fascinating about this is we, we have no idea really about how these processes are playing out. Um, you know, the limited information we get from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, it doesn't tell us much about what's happening in Eastern and Northern England at this time. And, you know, we're, we're in a deeply historical period here where we have this abundance of texts. Um, but in my own work, I've often thought of, you know, the Dane law, as it were, as a kind of it's a prehistoric landscape, because there's very few sources that we can actually rely on to get an idea about what's happening within this uh, within this area. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. It's why, you know, we will always use the term Vikings and we will talk about the Vikings. You know, this isn't, you know, these are, this isn't an ethnonym, but we use it to conceptualize groups of people at a certain time doing certain things. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't want to go around being the Dane Law police, you know. I mean, that's not what I want to do. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com extra. But I suppose underpinning all of this is, is the question of, of how culturally similar or otherwise the people who were living in what became the Danor and the people who came into it from mm-hmm. Scandinavia were. And, you know, the, the big differentiator that's always flagged up is is religion christianity versus paganism um take that away and, and are these people one of the same really um oh that's, it's an interesting question i mean uh, and of course you know we also have to talk about as it were the different groups coming into england as well these these scandinavian groups or, or groups from elsewhere as well um so but we can start with, with the, you know, as you say, talking about, um, you know, uh, you mentioned the kind of the, the Christian and non-Christian dichotomy there. Um, one thing that scholars have for great part, um, you know, uh, drawn attention to is this what seems to be a relatively quick process of acculturation. You know, the, the idea that incoming settlers would very quickly take on um English, you know, traditions, belief systems. Of course, they they assimilate into the structures of society. Um, But if you, you know, if you take that away, um, of course, there's still going to be differences between people. I mean, you know, at least among, you know, actual, you know, the people undertaking the settlements. I mean, there's going to be language differences, even though... English and, and Norse dialects may have had a, a degree of, you know, of mutual similarity, but I mean, you know, these, these are these are people who still speak a different language to you, or at least you know they speak a heavily different dialect. Um, hmm. I was I was under the impression that Old Norse and Old English were 
kind of mutually intelligible at this Sure, point. but I mean, but noticeably not, I would think. Sure. Um, you know, okay. so I mean, it, it, and, you know, and, and dialects as, as today, you know, in England, I mean, you know, we can, we can, you can identify very easily people who are not from the same place as you by, by dialect, you know. Um, on top of that, of course, I mean, you know, these settlers are bringing with them their own uh, material culture, which, as I said, you know, over time, um, goes through this really interesting process of of hybridization with with local influences and also continental influences uh, coming in. Um, but at the same time, there is still these kind of what seems to be, and again, my, my colleague Jane Kershaw has done a lot of work on this, um, you know, there are still, you know, kind of overtly ex- Scandinavian expressions of material culture in the archaeological record, um, you know, in terms of what we see in, in jewellery, for example. And, uh, and and Jane has suggested, you know, like in certain situations, you may have been politically or socially va- advantageous to show that you were culturally af- affiliating with a Scandinavian identity. So, you know, the, the, these kind of, you know, the, the, these things remain salient. Um, but as I said, I think we also need to think about the, the the nature of the settlers themselves, and not just you know place them in opposition, as it were, to the the local populations. I mean the the groups um, that you know, for example, were were traveling within the Great Army. I mean, you know, they they would have, of course, recognized that they shared a common cultural background. They would have shared the same language, even if there was dialectual differences um but at the same time you know these people aren't coming from one country and going to england you know that this isn't you know sweden norway denmark these these don't exist at this point in time so actually the groups setting the landscapes themselves were were, were disparate groups um probably you know in in scandinavia i mean you know identities and uh, affiliations are much more local Perhaps you know they're kind of regionally bounded, but again, while you might recognise, uh, you know, the people that you're travelling with in the Great Army, or you're settling alongside in the landscape with, you know, as as, as you know, coming from Scandinavia and ascribing, you know, to a Scandinavian culture, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's a, you know, a, a clear sense of of uh, belonging there, a mutual shared uh, identity. So, so might might that be the case then that um, uh, a group of uh, uh, incumbent English uh, occupants in in a part of the Danelaw might welcome um, some Scandinavian settlers coming in with you know with big swords and axes who who look like they can defend you from from other um, potential threats. I think in, I mean obviously as, as as I said in the in the the very early period I, I think maybe not so much but um but moving into the the tenth century when we see these concerted efforts by um, or by Wessex, essentially, you know, it says Alfred and his descendants to annex these territories. Um, and of course, you know, in the in the in the, the the political propaganda at the time, as it were, you know, in, in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, I mean, these conquests of of the Danelaw, if we use that term, you know, this is presented as something as a, a liberation. This is Alfred's successes liberating. Uh, the people of of eastern northern England from the Danes. I, I think in in or they you know of course the people they refer to as the Danes. Um, when we first you know in, in 942 for example when we this is when we first come across the term the five boroughs. Um, we see that King uh, Edmund is 
he is being described as as liberating these five settlements in the Midlands. Um, and the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says, you know, these these are are people who are held, you know, essentially captive by the heathens. You know, so this is some great political, you know, propaganda, as I said. Um, but for the the people on the other side of that <laughs> of that action, the, the English uh, populations of of um, you know Northumbria and 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 uh, you know, Lincolnshire and East Anglia themselves, you know, historically, they're you know they're, the regional kingdoms of, of of England had you know they'd existed alongside, but also in opposition to each other. I mean, if you go back in the centuries before the Viking Age, um, there's there's constant cycles of warfare between these different kingdoms. Um, so when we then move, you know, uh, we have the the great army and it's, you know, the subsequent settlers occupying this landscape. Um, when it comes to the the kind of the process of, of unification, as it were, uh, that, that begins with Alfred and his successors, I, I think certainly there may have been some resistance to that. Um, and in that sense, you know, I don't see any reason why we wouldn't have uh people we might refer to it's of course and it's very it's very um it's it's, it's very uh broad doing this very broadly it's very homogenizing itself but to to describe these people as you know english but uh but you know th- these people might have been actively taking up arms against uh wessex uh mercia as they're attempting to annex these territories um and again i think this speaks to these kind of this really complex regional and local dialogue that must have been going on, um, but which we have, you know, no historical uh, evidence to help us understand. Um, sure. Yeah. So you, you, you're kind of arguing here then that we've been uh, we've been sold at a Wessex-based uh, interpretation of, of, of the development of English history, which you know in a way we do because it builds up to Athelstan and uh, and, uh, and and you know and, and the development of the English polity as a, as a consequence of that. And the Anglo-Saxon chronicles that you've referenced started mm-hmm. by Alfred the Great, the the, the Wessex ruler um, in the late ninth century. Um, uh, and and so you, are you kind of saying then that the, the, the Wessex incursions into East Anglia was more of an affront to the uh, local occupations than the uh, than the Scandinavian based ones might have been? Um, well, I mean, yeah, uh, <laughs> 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 um, I mean, as of course the the early settlement was it, it was a process of forced settlement, colonization, conquest, whatever you want to call it. But 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 i think we we need to consider the 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 real implications of of what those uh those conquests later actually uh, sorry i mean the, the the conquests of this you know the, these areas by by Afra's descendants what that meant um i i i myself can't see any reason why you know this should have been in the minds of people presented as a liberation I mean, especially is as 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 we have said for so many years that you know the the settling populations coming into England they were mainly you know going through processes of acculturation they're not necessarily enforcing new structures on the population uh, maybe they are in some places of course um, but certainly I don't think they're kind of living under you know the uh, uh, the heathen yoke as they are as are portrayed in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. So yeah, and, and this is my own thoughts, and they're very hard to, to kind of substantiate in that sense. But you know, when we have um, regions like East Anglia and the Midlands being annexed um, by Edward the Elder, for example, in the in the early tenth century, uh, 
we see, um, you know, patterns of fortification construction, active fortification construction um, in these territories. And, and of course, we could, you know, we could suggest that these are, you know, these fortifications are being constructed to um, provide an infrastructure for the landscape to also counter potential aggression, for example, from from northern England, which was still under Scandinavian control, as it were. Um, but perhaps this is also to kind of, you know, put a stamp on the local population and to bring them under the order of, of, of you know, of essentially, a, you know, a people who had traditionally might not have been perceived as allies and at times were enemies. Um, again, I think there's there's so much to this that we, you know, we still need to to think about and, and and try and and try and you know order in our in our minds. Um, okay. Yeah. So so it's complicated. <laughs> so uh, yes. So let's 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 get simplistic for a second. And, and I know you're not going to answer this or have an answer to it. But was there ever a formal boundary between something that might be construed as the Dane law and something that might be construed as English territory? Uh, actually, in a sense, you know, I think we this is something we can talk about. Um, uh, certainly, not, not nothing, uh, not, not, nothing physical and up, upstanding. There's, there's no kind of you know, build a wall. No, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, in the in the period following the um, the Great Army's settlement um, in the eight seventies, um, or, or during this time, there is a treaty agreed between Alfred of Wessex or Alfred the Great, and uh, at that point the one of the main leading you know, commanders of the great army, uh, Guthrum, who actually becomes um, a ruler in his own right in East Anglia. And at some point between, you know, the, the 870s and, and Guthrum's death in, in 890, if I believe, um, there is actually a, a treaty instituted. Um, it's referred to, it could be referred to generally as actually the Alfred Guthrum Treaty. Um, and in this, um, alongside other 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 kind of uh, other legislation, um, there is actually a very clear um, attempt to define the boundaries of, of Alfred's and, and Guthrum's kingdom, um, and this is this is very well known. It could be can be looked up, um, but it basically it runs along the River Thames um, into into London, up the River Lee um, to its source, um, and from there in a straight line, it just says in a straight line to Bedford. Um, and then down the River Ouse to uh, to Watling Street, um, and that's the information we're given. And you know, so this this what this seems to suggest is that there is an attempt to actually establish a, a formal boundary between Guthrum's and Alfred's kingdom. And in fact, if you were to keep following what keep follow keep following uh, Watling Street uh, northwest, um, it's interesting that, for example, when we look at the place name evidence, there there doesn't seem to be a lot of Scandinavian place names on the the southwestern side of Watling Street. They're very much confined uh, to, to the north and west, north and east, sorry. Um, so there is some kind of boundary, I think. Um, but this shouldn't be seen, I don't think, in the sense of a border. It's, it's possibly a, you know, more, more viewed as a, a kind of a frontier zone, and, and people are free to move across that um, you know, with violent or nonviolent intentions. Um, but but what is interesting is actually this this boundary very quickly seems to fragment or or dissolve um, and and we see this you know just uh, decades after this treaty um, 
is agreed. We uh, we see, for example, Scandinavian elites selling land in what is is Bedfordshire um, to the west of this boundary. So within what was supposed to be Alfred's kingdom, um, we see them actually selling land back to the English kings, um, which implies, you know, at some point there's been a movement of this boundary. So it's, it's, it's in, in, you know, it's certainly permeable, fluid, movable, perhaps. Um, mm. And again, I think that actually speaks to many of the, you know, many of the processes taking place uh, in England at this time. It's, it's not, a, you know, this is a, a fluid and dynamic landscape in every sense of the term. So if I was able to travel back to the 890s and, and you know, started a journey from Winchester and mm-hmm. travelled up to, to York, mm-hmm. um, I'm not, when I get to, uh, I'm going to get my geography wrong now, but if I get to, uh, uh, get to Watling Street mm-hmm. and try to cross it, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be stopped by a bunch of burly dudes uh, with, with axes saying, can't cross here. Mm-hmm. But am I going to experience, is, is my experience of, uh, of the culture, of the language, of, of society, going to be markedly different from one side to the other. What does the archaeological evidence tell us about whether there was any any marked actual difference in life between those two areas? Yeah, uh, from an archaeological perspective, that's actually is, is quite difficult to say. Um, as I think I've mentioned that you would notice, for example. I think in uh, you would notice a difference in what people are wearing in their personal ornamentation, the jewelry they wear. Um, you would, um, and you know, not not you know, it isn't archaeological evidence, but I think you know there would be uh, a noticeable there would be noticeable differences in dialect used. Um, as I said, I think it's quite telling with the place name evidence that we see. You know, this is the Scandinavian influenced place names. You know, they are. They're in the northeast, that side of Watling Street, um, which doesn't just necessarily suggest that you know this is where people were settling, but it's also you know this is you know there's, there's a different language being spoken here. Um, I think that's probably the thing you would notice most, more than anything else, more than anything visual, um, in that sense. Um, would would I feel as if I was sort of in danger as a as a as an English person moving into this area, do you think would I would, would I feel like, you know, that I was I was in in a threatened landscape? It's, it's a really good question. Um as I said, this isn't a border. It's this isn't hmm. there's there's no as far as I can tell active um attempts to stop people moving across this. And of course, you know, I mean I, I presume people at least regionally and locally, would have traded with each other, for example. So you're going to have movement across this boundary. Um, and even, you know, even when, during periods where there are kind of, you know, there's, there's um, uh, outright um, conflict between Viking groups and, and you know, the English kingdoms, uh, you still, for example... So in, in addition to, you know, and with this trade, I, I think it's, it's, it's also telling that, you know, even in periods of actual conflict, outright warfare between various Viking groups in the, in the English kingdoms. Um, you know, for example, we have in, in around eight, the 890s, uh, we have the Norwegian uh, merchant Othair, who actually comes to the court of King Alfred, um, you know, and, and holds an audience with him. There doesn't seem to be any kind of notion that people of Scandinavian origin are hostile. They're not the enemy, as it were. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't think in that sense, no, there, there, there wouldn't necessarily have been a, a kind of 
tension in that landscape. I mean, this would, of course, at times flare up into into real tension and violence, especially as we see the the geopolitical map shifting um, in the late 9th century and early 10th century. Um, But for, you know, the (laughs) average Joe, as it were, um, living locally and moving through the landscape, I'm I'm not sure, in fact, that there would have been... um, uh, much, much sense of hostility and danger there. Um, but of course, that, that all might depend on how how movements through this landscape was monitored and, for example, taxed if you were um, traveling with the intent of, of engaging in commerce, um, which is very, you know, very difficult to get into. Hmm. And, and so when, so moving on a bit, when, when does the, the, when did the, the Dane law area and the rest of England sort of Come back into being well, not come back to, but but start to be one one whole entity where you might not um, recognise any differences at all. So I think it's it's telling even a couple of centuries following these settlements, when when Spain forbid um, invades England in in the early eleventh century, that you know he arrives in Sandwich, but um, he straight away heads north and into the Humber, um, and comes south from there. And this isn't by chance, you know, uh, he probably has a very good idea that people in the North and East are more, you know, they're likely to be sympathetic to him. Um, and indeed, he does gain the, the support of of people in, in, in the Northern and Eastern regions. Um, so even at this stage, you know, this is you know, over, you know, 100 years after, you know, these, are, these areas are being incorporated into the English kingdom, um, there's still a perhaps a notable feeling of, of difference. Um, and of course, you know, this, this is when we're, we're talking about the origins of this, this term, the Dane law. People in this part of England are governing themselves according to different forms of laws. They are maintaining an active sense of an, of an identity that doesn't conform with that in the West and the South. Um, and so, you know, I mean, the arrival of Spain Fort Beard, for example, you know, is might have been a, a good opportunity to for these people to rid themselves of of southern rule. Um and so in that I think, you know, this this idea of said a kind of a difference in, in cultural identities, I think that 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 actually perseveres for quite some time. I couldn't say maybe mm. when it when it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. <laughs> well, I get, you know, I guess it's kind of still recognisable when you get up to 1066 and, and and the Norman Conquest, because you've kind of got that sense that, I mean, certainly the bias tapestry takes a very southern view of of, mm-hmm. uh, of, of the history of that event and, and overlooks what's going on in, in the north and you kind of, Hardrada comes into the north mm-hmm. and lands and, you know, there's a sense that perhaps there's still uh, a difference between between the, the southern bit of England and the northern mm-hmm. bit of England even then, I, I, I think. Oh, oh no! Absolutely, absolutely, and um, you know, of course, then we have you know the the invasion from the south of, of, of the Normans, and that totally tears up the geopolitical map again. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, right up until that that the, the period of the conquest, I you know, and and likely you know it, it perseveres beyond that as well. Um, hmm. So it's it's this is a the the, the impacts of the settlement. I mean, they're they're incredibly long lasting. Um, even if you know they're they're officially according to the historical record, they're, they're, you know it's a very short period. You know, a few generations in which this area is actively under what we might call Scandinavian control, descendants of Scandinavians. Um, but the impacts of this are felt for 
for, for hundreds of years. Yeah, yeah, because as you say, it's a fairly confined period, isn't it, from from when the uh, the great army are there through to when is it like nine nine forties, nine fifties, when sort of an element of, of Wessex control over it. Yeah, um, when I wrote my PhD, it was uh, nine eight seven eight to nine five four, I believe. Um, that's that's the kind of date I I, I picked there. Um, this is when he had the death of Eric Bloodaxe. Um, in, in uh, you know the, the downfall, as it were, of what we call the Kingdom of York. Um, yeah. So I mean, it's a very small. You know, I mean, as I said, you're talking about a, a, a couple of generations, really. It, yeah. Yeah. But but with with fairly long lasting consequences. Mm-hmm. So okay. So um. So sort of getting towards the end. So we talked about the the the, the usefulness or otherwise of this term, the Dane mm-hmm. law, and, and and what it means to us, and what it means to us today. I suppose is is quite interesting. You know, it's it's used quite. Um, maybe you would say I'm not sure I'm not going to put words in your mouth but is it used injudiciously by people who who are using it as a shorthand for for something that never really actually existed at the time no and uh, you know in in writing this paper and and of course everyone is is free to read it and see what conclusion I came to in this sense I mean what I what I wanted to do was kind of highlight the the ambiguities associated with this um, with this term, and, and of course, we could write it off as as, as anachronistic, um, but would that actually achieve anything? Um, you know, I mean, if nothing else, for the for the, the the point of being able to write concisely, um, it's you know these these short these terms are incredibly useful. Um, and when I you know you say the word Dane or you again you generally have an idea of this place. And, and the events taking place within it, even, of course, if that is heavily glossed over and homogenized. Um, but nevertheless, I mean, this, 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 this term clearly did mean something to people in the, you know, in the medieval period, for example. So even if it's a, a kind of a, a, a term that we use just to highlight uh, legal and cultural differentiation in different parts of England. In that sense, I, I think it absolutely retains some use. And, and you know, maybe we just have to be a bit, yeah, boring essentially in in explaining exactly what we mean when we uh, when we use this term. Um, but I think it's, uh, as I said, really what I what I what I wanted to show is that there, there's a lot more maybe to what's taking place. In northern and eastern England, than than this term would originally let us, you know, conceive and understand. And rather than thinking perhaps about a Dane law, what we need to think more about is is these kind of many complex <laughs> processes which I've tried to to try and kind of uh, explain in some way. Um, but these really these very many fluid and dynamic changes taking place at, at regional and local levels within communities. I think that's where we start to understand what's happening during this period. Um, so, you know, as, 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 uh, for me, if we recognise that, then, then absolutely, you know, the, the, the Dane law still retains its, its kind of its use. Um, I think it's just a case of, of acknowledging and pushing through that term is, is what we need to do. Yeah, because mm-hmm. we do need these big terms to, to help us. I mean, yeah, you know, we talked about the danger of generalising, but we do need these bigger terms to help us understand what's going on and, and, to, and to bring us into the subject. Don't we? Oh, of course, right. I mean, it's, it's why, you know, we will always use the term Vikings and we will talk about the Vikings. You know, this isn't, you know, these are 
this isn't an ethnonym, but we use it to conceptualize groups of people at a certain time doing certain things. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't want to go around being the Dane Law Police. You know, I mean, that's not what I want to do. <laughs> That was Dr. Ben Ruffield. He's based at the University of Uppsala, where he's part of the Viking Phenomenon project team. If you'd like to read the academic article that was the basis for this podcast, it's an open access publication, so you can read it online. We've put the link in the show notes for you. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow for an episode on everything you wanted to know about prohibition. Prohibition.